Hey y'all, this is Ledge, and before we get to this episode, I want to tell you a quick story. I remember when we were contacted by one of the top video fitness apps in the United States, and they were doing a total rebuild, and they wanted to do that with our engineers. So we set that up, and we've been at it for two years with 10 different team members in every possible skill set from design to product management to scrum master to development. And it's been a really exciting journey where we are completely in charge of staffing that entire team for them. That's not a common scenario, but it just gives you an idea of the reach that we can bring to the table, you know, time and time again for mobile apps and for web apps and for design. And I think that's really one of the strengths of the huge bench of talent that we bring to the table. Now for our episode. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Russ Roberts, it is great to have you on The Frontier. We are big fans of your work. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, you, you know, your, your rap videos have uh, inspired millions, and uh, I'd love if you would give just a little background of your work, you know, suitable for the uh, the technologist audience. So you're you're speaking to twenty thousand CTOs, engineering leaders, software engineers, and maybe you know we're not all as attuned to the, the economic language as we should be. So it's it's sort of exciting to to talk to an educator uh, about that on the show. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, most of my Recent career, I started off as a, as a normal professor and academic and did research papers in economics. And then at some point, I wrote a novel on how trade works, international trade. And that was the beginning of my journey into an unusual path. Uh, I'm, I consider myself a public educator, somebody who tries to help people learn about the world. Uh, I started off, I was going to say, help them learn about economics, which is certainly what I started off doing. I've written three economic novels, um, a book on Adam Smith, a book on the financial crisis, all written for people with no background. Uh, but at some point uh, back in 2006, I became a weekly podcaster, which is a exciting, uh, unbelievably educational experience for me, and I hope my audience. So I've got 697 episodes of Econ Talk available in our archive right now without charge. Uh, I love that that's out there. And a year or two ago, I think I started branching out beyond economics and a lot more stuff on uh, what's going on in the country. Not politically, I'm not so interested in politics, but culturally and and the role that economics plays writ large. Not what's going to happen to interest rates next week, but more important, I think, questions about the role that money plays in our lives, employment, dignity, um, worrying about the future and the nature of, of technology and how it interacts with the rest of our life. So um, I do a lot of stuff. I do the podcast. I write books. Uh, I write essays on Medium. I'm way too active on Twitter where I'm econ talker. And I create a lot of a uh, number of videos to try to help people understand various aspects of life uh, related broadly to economics. And where does technology fit in that? You know, we work with the people who lead and you know, literally write the code that is driving the the software transformation of everything. It's uh, you know, Mark Andreessen, right? One of your previous guests. You know, software is is eating the world, and I, I think that's even just more true every day in this uh, economic and and social 
change that's happening, how do you break that down into a, a consumable little level for you know us technologists? Oh, it's complicated, of course. I, I'm a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. I spend uh, six to seven weeks every summer out there. And when I'm out there, I find it incredibly exhilarating. Uh, some of that comes from Stanford. It's a great university, but a lot of it comes from the oh, 30 or 40 mile radius outside of Stanford. And uh, it's an incredibly dynamic place, the that world, Silicon Valley and, and the innovation around there. And I alternate between romancing how technology is going to transform our lives for the better and the, the flip side, which is mm, maybe not so good all the time. When you're out there, when you're in in California, uh, there's this pervasive, nearly religious belief that technology makes everything better, everything is possible, and nothing can stop us. And um, it's it's an elixir. It's a intoxicant mm -hmm. to be out in that environment. It's inspiring. At the same time, it's dangerous. You know, it, it, there's a lot of uh, blindness, which is. Has a, it's a mixed blessing, blindness. It, it, there's a lot of overconfidence about how things are going to work out. And, you know, early in my life, I was very much an optimist. I'm a little less optimistic now, but I still retain some of my optimistic youth. So um, I hope it'll all work out. But the people who work out there and live out there, uh, software is eating the world. And uh, that's going to be one of the great feasts of all time. It's all going to be wonderful. And <laughs> I sometimes wonder whether maybe uh, there's some indigestion involved. But We'll see. It's a great time to be alive, I think, for most of us. Obviously, there are people in America and around the world who are not part of this incredible revolution uh, of coding software, the digital world, the virtual world. It's an amazing time to be alive for most of us. And for some folks who are not part of that, I think we need to be thinking about how to help them join this uh, revolution or be part of it in a healthy way, whatever turns out to be the right human response to it, but it's an incredible time. And your, uh, your response to the sort of Silicon Valley uh, ethos, you know, makes me, me think of your videos where uh, Keynes ends up with the, you know, sort of hangover in the morning there. And <laughs> I, it's a, it's an apt metaphor for, uh, you know, the, this boom and bust. And, and we're looking yeah. at uh, it being in the labor market, you know, particularly now it's, it's a, uh, if there was ever a seller's market for a software engineer of the senior variety, you know, this is it. Like, it's just extraordinary demand for what um, these folks can do and, and driving the rates up and up and up. And, um, you know, we do wonder at, you know, so at what point does that become unsustainable sort of mania for the attraction of that talent? I don't know. I don't think that's, um, I don't think it's any kind of bubble. Uh, there have been, you know, booms and busts in the labor market for people with technical ability that, that we're talking about. Uh, but I think, you know, the long run market for that skill sets remains very high uh, and it may continue to climb because the salaries attached to it because it's hard to do. Not everybody mm -hmm. can do it. Um, uh, machines can't do it yet. Maybe they'll be able to do it someday, but and they could do a lot of wonderful things when instructed by humans right now. And we don't know how far that process is going to go. But just if you think about the skill set that people in Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere have to help transform our world through the digital process and through software, um, 
it's a, just a marvelous thing, most of it. Not all of it. Obviously, there's some interesting cultural questions and labor market questions for people who aren't in that skill set, don't have those skills. But I think um, if you're in that world, uh, the future is very bright. I, a friend of mine just is in the process of, of looking for a new job. He's losing his job. And I don't th- I don't sense any, and he's a software person, I don't, I don't see any anxiety on his part. It's just a question of where he'll choose to live and what kind of company he'll choose to work for and the package of benefits uh, that he'll have in that job. Uh, he's got a lot of choices, and that's a wonderful thing if you're in that in that market. And what responsibility do the rest of us have to help in the education of, of bringing up? A, it's almost like you know how every phone bill had a uh, the universal access kind of tax on it, right? That this is so ubiquitous and so important now. Does it does it become a mandate for the rest of us to invest in the technological education of? our entire society to to keep from leaving people behind that that digital divide on the education and access side. Yeah, that's only one of the problems. I think I think the bigger problem we face is how do we interact and interface with technology as human beings. And I, we don't know the answer to that. There is an an answer. There's going to be a, a host of answers that human beings come to through the process of interacting with technology, the culture of how we think about that interaction is going to evolve and change. Yeah, I like to I like to think of the examples that we have now with our phones. You know, when is it polite to take your phone out and answer a call? When is it polite to just gaze at it mindlessly in the middle of a conversation uh, to see if you got a notification or if you did get a notification, what is it? And those kind of social rules and norms are very much up in the air right now and are going to change. Uh, we can see that with young people already. Young people rea- interact and react differently to technology than older people do because that culture is alive. It's changing constantly. And I think the issue we face, and you know, there's, there's already a bunch of books getting written about it and have been written. You know, how do we deal with this? Do we really want to be on our phones and on screens 24-7? If not, you know, should we go cold turkey? Uh, should we have a, a, a Sabbath of some kind from technology? How do we maintain our human interactions with our friends? Um, all that's up, up in the air. It's all up for grabs. And I don't think we know how it's going to turn out. And that's okay. I think we'll figure out a lot of the right ways to deal with it. You know, some people worry, though, that we're we're irrevocably losing something precious about the human experience because of our over-attention to technology. And I think there is a tendency, if you look at history, that it's an old complaint. It's an old worry. doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, uh, there's a, a book by Alan Watts, the uh, Buddhist philosopher written in, uh, I think, in the 50s, called The Wisdom of Insecurity. Very interesting book. And the first half is a complaint about the speed of life and, and technology. It's written in 1950. You can find it in... Um, you know, you can find it going back a hundred years before that. Now, it's that doesn't mean that it's a, a false worry. It doesn't mean that oh, we've always had this worry. It always seems to turn out okay. It could be that we're heading into a place that's not okay. So I think it's it's a wise, judicious, prudent person is thoughtful about it. But uh, the past does suggest that we will figure this out and deal with it in a way that maintains our humanity and our ability to flourish those statements feel very optimistic to me and you made the comment of of having you know moved a little bit to the 
the pessimist side of, of the, the spectrum. So, you know, what is that? What's the genesis of, of that thinking pattern? More wisdom over time? Or? Well, I'm a, I don't know, but I, I'm a big fan of uh, competition as a way to restrain uh, the ability of corporations and others to exploit us uh, as consumers or, or as, as, as human beings or individuals. And I, I worry a little bit about the state of competition right now in the tech world. And I think a lot of the solutions for making that better probably aren't going to necessarily make it better. I think the thing we want to worry about is have regulation tends to benefit large companies. Uh, ironically, a lot of people assume that we need to regulate Google, regulate Facebook. Um, the problem with that is that when we do that, we impose costs on them. And a lot of people then cheer on the sidelines. Yes, we're hurting them. We're hurting them. That's good. And yet what happens from that is that they're really good at dealing with regulation. They have, they'll just create a regulation department. And it'll have a billion people in it, and they'll figure out ways to get around it or cope with it or just see it as a tax. But what that means is that if you're a small company or startup uh, and a new entrant, you can't have that zillion-person regulation compliance department, and so there won't be any new companies. And that's the last thing we want. So I think the challenge is how do we respond to the current landscape, which is uh, worrisome for me more politically than it is economically. I'm less worried about... Google or Amazon selling me stuff I don't want, which is not a really a good strategy. I'm more worried about them giving me information that doesn't benefit me for some political purpose. So their ability to control what I see in searching, what shows up in my timeline or feed uh, that influences me politically based on knowledge they have about the rest of me, that that's worrisome to me. That is a part of my source of, of pessimism. And, you know, and there are a lot of signs that that we're not so healthy as a, as a culture. We've got a what appears to be a rising suicide rate. We have a rising drug addiction rate with death as a response, as a result. So uh, there's some depressing, disturbing aspects of America right now. We've got a bunch of uh, uh, geographic areas that are struggling economically that don't seem to be uh, – uh, coping well with economic change in the past, those people would just move. But now it's really hard to move because the way we've regulated cities and made it harder for people to build new housing and new apartments and new buildings. So, you know, there are things to be worried about. I, I hope and assume we'll figure them out. I just I don't want us to regulate this environment in a way that ends up uh, helping uh, the powerful become more powerful. We want to make sure we do it in a way that increases or at least allows the competition that, that usually protects us. And the other thing I would add is that, as, as my uh, a friend Arnold Kling, economist and, and um, blogger and author writes, uh, if you don't like Facebook, create a better one. If there are things you don't like about it, make a better one. Now, we understand that it's hard to do. Uh, network effects are very different uh, than they are for traditional brick and mortar products in, in the real world. So we're going to see how that plays out. You know, if it doesn't play out well, I think there are things that we will do in the legislative regulatory world that'll change that. And we just have to hope that those are not uh, have that they don't have unintended consequences. That sure. That hurt yeah, us. and you can think uh, I think ten off the top of my head of people who tried to make a better Facebook and and got squashed. You know that the the momentum. And the weightiness of, of that beast makes it almost, you know, sort of the new 
phone number and you're, you know, kind of stuck there. That said, there will always be a next juggernaut. Um, the almost any advice for the small players to, to think about, I know, you know, it's sort of down in the weeds of, of entrepreneurship, but we hear those, those conversations a lot. What, what have you learned and can, can teach about the small fry that, that has an idea and, and maybe can be the next uh, disruptive force? So because I've talked about this a little bit on Econ Talk, a number of people got in touch with me with uh, either existing ventures or new ventures that are trying to compete with tech companies uh, with a different strategy, with a different, uh, say, a different, say, encryption or a different level of privacy or a different uh, financial model, uh, business model as, as a way of reassuring customers and users that they will not be the product uh, that uh, they'll not be exploited financially or in any other way. And, you know, those are all in, in the beginning stages. Uh, some of them are really exciting, some of them less so, but a number of them are in the social media um, space. And I, I speculated that it might be useful to them. There's more than one, right? There's more than one would be Twitter. There's more than one would be Facebook. There's more than one would be WhatsApp. And I think one of the uh, options that those startups have, they understand that they're not just a competition co competition with Twitter and Facebook. They're a competition with each other. What's what's going to be the new Facebook, the new Twitter, the one that, that leapfrogs past the current existing players because it does something better? And I wonder if it might be of value to pledge as one of those new startups that you will not uh, – create the same business model as those others have. In other words, uh, as some listeners will know, uh, your your email address is portable. So I have, I have a, among others, I have a few, but I have a Gmail address. But I can send people emails who aren't at Gmail. That's totally okay. But I can't tweet to somebody on Facebook. Now, I understand Facebook doesn't want me to, and Twitter doesn't want me to, but all these new competitors to, to Twitter and Facebook, be really interesting. They said, we're going to have an open garden. We're going to uh, allow uh, portability of your friends slash followers slash um, whatevers to, um, it's just a pledge. We don't, we don't, uh, we might end up being the biggest and only successful competitor one of those places but it's also possible that a whole ecosystem of competitors could thrive if they kept that openness as an alternative to the current sure. system you know the current system is you know i have 50 something thousand followers on twitter if i go to a new competitor to twitter that it, let's say is less trollish well, just to take an example, let's say that's what bothers me about Twitter and somebody creates a Twitter competitor that doesn't have the ability of people to be, be so obnoxious. And I know a couple that are trying to do that. So let's say I want to switch. Well, I start off with zero followers. Now, it's not a tragedy. I, you know, I, I, maybe I'll be fine with that. But wouldn't it be interesting if I could switch over the way I can with my phone number or with my email? And that that's the kind of – you could regulate that. That could be a, a legislation. But I like the idea that new competitors would say, well, that's just the world we want to live in. We're going to play in that space. Understanding that once you do that, your ability to monetize your user base has gone down. So, you know, there is a trade-off there. 
and money has many advantages uh, to improvement and innovation and so on. But I, I think that's an interesting model for thinking about how we might uh, get a little more competition. Going. Sure, sure. And I know there are a lot of technologists thinking around those exact issues uh, relative to the, the actual implementations and usefulness of blockchain. That, that in fact, that yeah. would be you know quite a useful technology for that. It's not just about that, that crypto currency and, and all those things. Um, I'd be interested for your comments on a another that sort of the IoT, right? The uh, computing on the edge, and everything's a sensor, and everything is paying attention and recording and making new valuable insights about our our health strapped to our wrist and the temperature of our homes yep. and and all that. That seems to be a a trend that that isn't going to slow down. Uh, yet rife with security concerns, but also rife with um, economic, you know, potential positive economic impact uh, for and for life you know that if your car is smarter it won't run into things stuff like that so. yeah no that that's the tension i yeah. think about whether you should be optimistic or pessimistic about the world that's coming uh i really love the idea of a car that keeps me from crashing into another car i'm a big fan of that uh and of course i also like that uh amazon might know when i'm out of popcorn you know i <laughs> not quite as important but pleasant the worry is that in between there are some things that might not be in my own interest. Uh, usually, again, competition is going to restrain companies from doing things that are only in their interest and not in mine. But when there's only a couple of them, you start to worry about it. So, you know, I'm uh, somebody gave me uh, a personal assistant. I think it's uh, an Alexa product, an Amazon product, and. Um, I don't want to hook it up. Uh, you know, I'm I'm 64, so I think a lot of young people go, "What do you mean you're not going to hook it up?" Uh, I just don't like the idea that it's always listening. Yes, I know it's probably not listening when I'm arguing with my uh, brother about something or my kids, but I just don't like the idea of it. It just there's something creepy about it, and uh, other people make a different trade off there. They're very excited to let. Um, Amazon or Apple or Google know about what I do when because there's some wonderful benefits from it. And if it's going to call the ambulance when I have a heart attack, I, I might have second thoughts about whether I want to let him in my house. So um, there's a lot of cultural and economic things that are going to change over the next 10 years related to those kind of surveillance monitoring privacy issues. And it's going to be fascinating to see how they turn out. And I wonder, do you think we have the smarts and the infrastructure and the decision-making systems and abilities to, to move fast enough and react and make good choices in a you know exponentially increasing sort of accelerating technology environment? Can we keep up? Can we tame the beast? I can't. <laughs> and you can't. And, right. and you can't. And and even Mark Andreessen can't. But the question is whether the competitive landscape can, whether the market as a whole can, whether the crowd can. And I think, you know, so much of what is great about being uh, alive in general doesn't come from one person figuring it out. You know, it, we would be in big trouble if the president of the United States had to figure out how to do anything. You name it. Uh, you can tell it's a hard enough job as it is. Uh, then it doesn't matter whether it's the smartest Democrat or the smartest Republican. 
it, it's a horrible system if it requires the president or the Fed, the chair of the Federal Reserve, to understand how to run the economy or figure out the right regulation. I mean, that's the whole advantage, really, of, of a decentralized uh, environment as opposed to a top-down uh, command and control. You know, command and control, top-down, you got you got to, quote, figure it out. The bottom-up emergent solutions are trial and error. And a lot, most of them are going to be error. In that, you know, that's a incredibly valuable lesson that that we should have learned as as a body politic and as a species. It's nobody, most people don't know, and even the people who do know don't know. They just sometimes stumble on something that's useful, and if it works, people will, will grab onto it. You know, if I said, "Oh, I know what," you know, which platform is going to be the next Twitter? Well, as an investor, I might make that bet, but probably going to be wrong. Most sure. of them are going to fail. Uh, and we don't know which of the five or 10, whatever it is, or 100 competitors are going to be the one that, that does better. But uh, that's the beauty of a decentralized system. You don't have to have that knowledge. So I think the the question will be, again, is, is to maintain the opportunity for people to come up with new alternatives and new ways of coping with, with this. I mean, just to take the silliest little example, you know, my, uh, I have I have a couple of kids in college, uh, and I've talked to them and their friends. One of them's taken all social media off his phone, everything, uh, you know, and wants to get a dumb phone. Wants to get a phone that, you know, that just has uh, maybe Uber and Waze, and that's it. Because those are sort of like, you know, the things we feel like, well, I can't live without that. That'd be, you know, that'd be crazy. Uh, another has, uh, you know, a device on his phone that if he's on a particular site. It sends him a warning, or it you know get stops him from being there if he's on there too long. And you know, there's a whole bunch of variations on that. Um, like I, I took Twitter off my phone. I was spending too much time on it. I can get it back anytime. I can download it. Uh, it's not hard. I've just made it a little harder. Uh, but I could get a dumb phone that make it impossible. So you know, all these choices are going to be out there. People have to see what works for you might not work for me. We're all going to try different ways of, of, of dealing with these uh, seductive uh, technologies, and you know we'll see how it plays out. It strikes me that it's impossible not to come back to being self-aware and creating that space for thinking about our condition and that we can control and make choices and not be controlled uh, in our condition if we're if we're smart about it. But you need to you need to leave yep. that sort of thinking space and go, you know, what can I do here? I just did it myself, spending too much time on a particular thing. I didn't even take it off. I just moved the icon. And, and my muscle memory is hitting that particular spot and bringing up my calendar <laughs> and reminding me I have work to do instead of going on that other thing. And, yeah. and it, it made a huge difference turning off notifications, you know, all these things. But you you kind of sit there and you think, you know, it's just what am I, what am I giving up? You, and it's that uh, talk about behavioral, right? It's that, you know, sort of dopamine fix of checking every time somebody liked something, particularly when you have 50,000 yep. followers, you know, you get a lot of dopamine. So. <laughs> yeah. And when you're, I think when you're younger, uh, dopamine's a little more exhilarating. Yeah. I think as you get a little older, you can, you can do without it a little bit more. Uh, so I think that self-awareness project is, um, it's underappreciated. I feel like for young people today, again, I have kids in their uh, late teens, early 20s, mid 20s. 
they're much more interested in figuring themselves out than I was at that age. I was much more self-confident. Now, it could be they were raised by a fantastic Absolutely. father or mother, yeah. but I, I, I don't think that's it. I think I think it's in the uh, in the air in a way that it wasn't when I was younger. Um, the number of tools, many of which are dangerous and unhelpful, but many of which are good. You have to try and see what works for you. The number of podcasts, the number of self-help books, the number of journaling skills, the number of, there's so much stuff out there to help you become a little more self-aware. Uh, you know, meditation apps. Uh, there's just a lot out there to help people uh, cope with the complexity of themselves. And that, that's, I think, a good thing. Well, before we wrap, let me give you the, I guess, the last thought as a, as a public educator, you can now uh, influence a, a pretty large crowd here and you do that on a regular basis. So, you know, what, what things ought people to sort of pause their normal activities and, and spend a little time self-educating on in your, in your current perspective? Oh, that's a big question, of course, and, and there's no simple answer, but, um, I think the there are a few basic things I think that are that are wise. Um, one is to read. Uh, you know, you don't have to read books, although I think books are have a special uh, value. It's a chance to spend extended time with with one way of thinking and one set of insights, and that's life changing. And it's certainly any one book may not be life changing. You know. Uh, it's often the case, as a recent Econ Talk guest, uh, Andy Matushik, pointed out, we forget a lot of what we read. So it went, in many ways, books as they're currently composed are somewhat inefficient. And yet, we all know books that had a big impact on us. And any one book may not be that book, but over a course of a lifetime, reading and keeping your mind active and exposed to new ideas is a hugely important enterprise, in, in my view. This, the second thing I would point out is um, you're not the center of the universe. Uh, you feel like you are most of the time. We do. We feel like we're the center of the universe, that most of our daily life is the playing out of a great cinematic drama where we're the stars and everyone else is the um, supporting actors and actresses. And you know anything that gets you out of that, anything that gets you in touch with the transcendent is, I think, a good thing, whether it's religion or meditation or uh, getting out into the world of nature and appreciating the grandeur of of, um, of the world around us. So, you know, those two things, stepping outside yourself and uh, transcending yourself, not seeing yourself as the center, continuing to learn. Those are the two places that I think there are to start um, and, and to be studious about yourself. Um, it's so easy to go through life not thinking about anything letting your brain just respond and being aware that your brain does that is a huge advantage. Uh, it took me a long time before I realized how little free will I actually have. And I hope I try, I think, I imagine that I've expanded that sphere a little bit that in between the uh, stimulus and the response, there's a breath, there's a moment and I can stop and I can think about how I want to, what I want to say or how I want to behave or how I want to react rather than just being impulsive all the time. And a lot of what we talked about earlier with respect to technology is about fighting impulsivity, our natural human evolutionary set of patterns, some of which come from evolution, some from our childhood. To be aware of those is a huge step toward being a grown-up. So um, 
I haven't gotten there yet, but you know, I keep working on it. I think we all have to work on it. I don't think it's uh does it come naturally to us, right? What comes naturally to us is uh is eating and feeding. And uh I think um as we become more self aware, I think we have a chance to be a little more uh, human, a little more less uh a little less natural, which is sometimes a good thing. Russ Roberts, thank you so much for your your thoughts and insights today. It is awesome to have you on. Thank you, Ledge. It was great being on. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.